Good morning, everybody. It is good to be together. If you could, uh, I could have kind of done that for a while. That was good. Um, why don't we open our Bibles, hear from God's Word. Um, if you don't have one, there should be one on a row near you. If you uh, don't have one near you, um, you can look on an app on your phone. We use something called the English Standard Version of the Bible, and that will help you kind of follow along. Uh, we take books of the Bible here at Treasuring Christ Church and work through them, allowing God's Word to kind of dictate to us where we go and what He has to say to us. But today we're going to take a, br- a brief break from our normal series through the book of Ephesians, and we find ourselves today in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And this morning I just want to say a shout out to Jesus and thank Him so much for those who have labored hard to help make Sunday morning happen from this corporate worship team to the sound and the visual team back in the back. They're just such a gift. And this morning, I got a text, 641 this morning, from John Wisely, who has been leading our vision team. And he says, the Lord is risen, rejoice. And then he sent me a passage of scripture, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. I said, did you know I'm preaching that text this morning? And he says, no, I didn't, but God did. And I said, that's right, because he's alive. So today we anticipate that our Lord is at work uh, through his people and through his word. And so today we're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3, and I'll read all the way to verse 7, and then I'll pray and we'll dive right in. On this Easter Sunday morning, the word of God begins this way. Blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. We come before you. And if we're honest in the depths of our soul, we are a mess. And we come because you're not. You entered into our mess on the Calvary Road. You entered into this suffering world as you lived on this earth 30 plus years. As you lived in this life. And you suffered. And you died in our place. And you rose from the dead three days later. And we say all praise and glory and honor to you. That's why we gather We gather because our hope hinges upon you. Our life revolves around you. And if, for whatever reason, whether we've never heard or whether we've rejected what we've heard, oh Father, I pray that you would cause our hard hearts to topple today. Every one of us. And that we would humbly, with with our hearts, lift our hands up and say, We have nothing to bring, and we need you to fill us up with everything. Oh God, please come. 
You sent your son. He is alive. And it is that that we say, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you. We praise you. Now move, we ask, in our midst. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The news is a place you go to try to find out many times what's really a big deal. Some of you hate the news. Others of you, you read it like you drink water. It's just what you got to do, right? But when you read the news, you find out at least what someone thinks is a big deal. That is the tragedy of the burning of the Notre Dame Cathedral where they estimate that it'll probably cost over $1 billion to restore it to its 800-year former glory. Some people saw that as a tragedy because of it being a religious symbol, and others saw it as a tragedy because of its amazing architecture. But most of you, this was not the first time you heard about it. It's news. It's news. It's a big deal. For others of us, this past week, we heard on the local news possibility for tornadoes. Tornadoes might come. Severe weather might come. Became a big deal, right? Why? Because we thought life might be in jeopardy. There was danger before us. It's a big deal. The news told us so. There's a lot of news that goes out. Like for you music lovers, Beyonce came out with her new album, right? You, some of you knew that. Homecoming, the live album, it had one new song. You were pumped. Others of you who are really on the Bayhive, you knew that she's on a diet. And that matters to you. It does not to me at all. But music, we love it. It's a big deal. It's in the news. What about you sports lovers? Some of you, you watched Tiger Woods. You watched him win his fifth Masters and his 15th major championship. And some of you, when you hear the word golf, you would rather be shot in the toe. It's just like, no thanks. I just don't have any desire for that at all. For others of you, it's like NBA playoffs and NHL playoffs are happening and that excites you. It's a big deal. It's news. What determines what's news? And notice, I mentioned nothing about politics. Can I get an amen? Okay. What determines what is news? What determines what's a big deal? What gets likes, what gets retweets, what gets reposted? What determines what is news is how many lives it affects. Who cares about it? That's what makes it big news. And you know it's news when life begins to be threatened. It becomes news when something gives you a sense of joy or excitement. For others of us, we just want something to distract us from the pain Or we want somebody to be able to identify with us. And anything that does that, it's news. Christians all over the world today are celebrating. And they are singing. And they are shouting. And they are gathering. Because today is big news. It's resurrection day. Some even under the threat of persecution. And sadly, some have experienced persecution today in Sri Lanka. Over 200 have been killed in targeted attacks on churches this Easter Sunday. Why? Why would people gather to celebrate something? Why is it such a big deal? Because the claim of all claims is that Jesus Christ is the biggest deal. He is the biggest deal on the planet, in the universe. And Jesus Christ came 
and he died in our place and he is alive. And that is the biggest deal that we could ever think about. It changes history. It changes lives. It changes communities. All over the globe, across ethnicities, Jesus Christ is a big deal. And Peter is telling us here in 1 Peter chapter 1, he starts out just writing this letter and saying, blessed, all praise be. It's like shouts, it's like exclamation, it's like the volume just got shifted on high. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What would lead him to shout? What would lead him to to speak out loud and to start his whole letter with just praise? It's because he saw Jesus alive. He saw him die for his sins. He saw him forgive him of his lying and betrayal and denial. And he saw him rise from the dead. Peter's life was wrecked. Totally changed. And he writes this letter saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus is a big deal. According to his great mercy... He has caused people, people who trust in him to be born again to a living hope. What are the next words? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Where does the living hope come from? It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Can you say that with me? I'll ask it again. Where does the living hope come from? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When Paul is addressing one of his understudies, Timothy, a pastor at the church of Ephesus. When he goes to him, he says this, Remember, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. This is the task of every Christian. This is the task of humanity to remember, to recall, not just facts, but all that it means. And that's what we're going to do for a few minutes here today. We're going to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Because this passage tells me, if I trust in that God, if I surrender my life to that Savior who died and rose from the dead, I will be born again to a living hope. A hope that sustains me through suffering. A hope that will get me to the end, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven by my God. This is what we're going after. So, to summarize it, Three ideas. Why is Jesus a big deal? Number one, because we are a bad deal. Two, because his death finished the deal. And three, his life brought real living hope. And I know the last point doesn't have deal, and that's on purpose. It's okay. Why is Jesus a big deal? Because we are a bad deal. His death finished the deal, and his life brought real living hope. So, Why is Jesus a big deal? Because we are a bad deal. You never want to be a part of a bad deal. Samsung has just come out with a new phone. It's a foldable phone. The foldable phone. Come out. It's great and creative. Now you open it and it becomes a tablet. Or in the iPhone world, it becomes an iPad. And as it folds out, you know what the reports are? It's breaking. Two grand for the foldable phone that becomes a tablet that breaks. I don't think we want this right now. Apple did not pay me to make this advertisement right now. 
they're going to fix it and it'll be great. You know, that's how it rolls sometimes. But you don't want a bad deal. You don't want to spend two grand on something that breaks, right? You don't want to go and buy a car that then, right, you turn around and now you have to spend more money to get it fixed. It's a bad deal. You don't want that. You know what that means. You don't want that. And I'm telling you, humanity is selling us a bad deal. Here's the bad deal. Humanity can fix it. That's what we're told. As if all of human history has not said the opposite. What's it? We can't fix ourselves. Why is there no peace? Why is there constant war? Why are we constantly, for generation after generation, dealing with shame and guilt? We can't fix it. And yet the lie is, lean on humanity to fix it. It is a bad deal. It is a bad deal. And look at this passage. Peter is screaming with joy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it says, according to His great mercy. Mercy. Why, is, why does that lead him to shout? Because as one man said, mercy is for the miserable. You need mercy because there's a problem. In 1987, I was 11 years old, I still remember Jessica McClure. Jessica McClure, a little 18-month-old girl, was playing in her backyard in Texas. And she fell into an 8-inch pipe that was of an old abandoned well. And as she fell into that pipe, she began to move And the more she moved, the further she sunk. The more she wrestled, the further she sunk until 22 feet down she was stuck. And in that moment, it took first responders, mine experts to figure out how to drill a shaft, all kinds of personnel to come for two and a half days, all over the news, to drill down, to cut across in order that they might hopefully meet her 22 feet down and rescue her. And they did. Jessica McClure is alive today. She's married and has children. What does that story teach us? That little girl could not save herself. She needed the mercy of all those around her. She needed help because she couldn't do it. And this is us. Spiritually speaking, humanity is in a miserable state and in need of great mercy. I don't know why this has to be told, but people don't believe this. But let's just take a quick survey. I don't mean to be the bearer of bad news. I think it's just the bearer of real news. And that is, our world is breaking. Right? It's breaking. The fact that we had to deal with tornadoes this week, that you've had trees uprooted, that there are earthquakes that happen, that tornadoes and typhoons can come, that floods exist, that there are animals out there that kill, that when you try to work on the ground, it's difficult. You know where I live? I live not far from Rock Quarry Road. You know what that means when you try to dig around Rock Quarry Road? You find rock that was slow. But yes, you do. You find rock, and it's miserable to try to plant around there. Our world is broken. 
Creation, it says in the Bible, is groaning for things to change because sin breaks things. When sin entered the world with Adam and Eve, it broke creation. And although it is glorious and beautiful, you still have pollen season and you got mosquitoes around the corner. It's a broken creation. Our world is breaking. But not only is creation breaking, but just the workplace screams that sin is a big deal. Does it not? Yes, it does. If you're not going to answer, I'll answer myself. People do not do what they're supposed to do. Do they not? Deadlines are missed. Projects get derailed. People change their minds. Work is lost. Our work tells us at minimum that things are not like we think they should go. But even deeper, it tells us things are not as they should be. We experience it every day. And our possessions scream the same thing. They keep telling me that my cell phone battery is going to last longer. Why doesn't it do it? Why does it constantly fade? Why does it constantly run out of batteries when I need it? Why do I have to have a charger around every corner? Because our world decays. Why is there such thing as rust? Because our world decays. Our homes crack. Our cars do not last. Last week, in our second service, many of you were sweating bullets. That was not for effect. Our heating and air unit broke. It was 79 degrees in this room. Things break. Why is that? Because sin breaks things. But it doesn't just break things. Most importantly, it breaks us. It breaks people. And you know this. You know this. Because let's start with this. There's no one in this room and there's no one on the planet that hasn't been sinned against. You've been cut off while you're driving by a selfish driver, haven't you? Yep. You've received an inappropriate sign language when you accidentally made a driving error. Yes, you've been yelled at. You've been lied to. You've been betrayed. You've been misrepresented. You've been abused. You've been hated and attacked. You've been stolen from. You've been torn down by words. You've been undervalued. You've been degraded. You've been made to feel worthless. You've been excluded because you are different. And the list only goes on. I do not need to convince you of the pain of sin. You have all experienced its pain. It hurts. It's not easy to move on. It leaves and can leave lasting scars. And yet people try to argue that sin is not a thing. It's not really that bad. Why do people try to say that? Because we not only hate the sin done to us, but deep down we know We've committed some of those same things to others. Sadly, you and I aren't only hurt once. We too have hurt. We've gotten too angry. We've stolen or we've lied or we've misrepresented or we've chosen ourselves 
over someone else or chosen a thing over God. We've made a relationship our Savior. We've made money our King. We're guilty. Sin is not just an abstract thing. It's not just something that breaks the world. It breaks our hearts. It destroys us from the inside out. And this is not something that is solved by you convincing yourself you're better than your neighbor. I've seen so many marriages crushed because you're constantly looking at your spouse rather than looking here. You're constantly looking at your coworker. You're constantly looking at your your friends or those who are around you. And the Bible speaks to the fact that we are broken inside. There's so much pain that has happened to us. But there's so much pain and personal sin that we must own. There is no answer in just blaming someone else. It only leads to bitterness. Dear friends, no exaggeration. We are like the Hulk in the Marvel movies. Doesn't know how he got there. Right? How did he get there? Did I do it again, he says. And you look back and buildings are crushed. Things are all kinds of wreck all around him. And when he becomes ungreen, did I do that? That's us. Our sin makes a wreck of things. Sometimes we can't even see it. We don't even know what we've done. Sin's horrible. So horrible it required the death of Jesus. You know something? That's the only reason Peter can sing in this passage. Is because he knew, he knew firsthand what a desperate sinner he was. He knew how miserable he was. And so what leads a miserable person to sing is because they know mercy. They know mercy. That's what we celebrate today. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused sinful people to be born again to a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why don't you say it with me? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is a big deal because humanity is a bad deal. And we need a better deal. We need one who seals the deal and that is at the cross. He sealed it at the cross. And so, my friends, if you reflect on that little baby... Jessica McClure. The story in and around that. What it does not highlight is that little baby's ability. The fact that all those people would sacrifice all that time and energy and money and labor to rescue her. You know what it does communicate? It communicates her worth. How valuable she is. She's worth all these resources. She's worth all this time. She's worth all this sacrifice. She's worth it. And our Savior left the glories of heaven and came down and died a sinner's death because He said, you're worth it. And you're loved. The glory of my Father is at stake. And the good of humanity is at stake. And so we came because you're special and you're valuable.
and his God is great. And so why is Jesus a big deal? Not only because we're a bad deal, but because his death finished the deal. You see the death word there in verse 3. It happened through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter knows death had to happen in order to celebrate in a resurrection. His death finished the deal. There's no greater summaries of the importance of his death than out of Jesus' own mouth in John 19 when he says this, Jesus knowing that all was now finished, he said, in order to fulfill scripture, he said, I thirst. Why did he have to say that? Psalm 22, a prophecy about the coming Messiah, said that the Messiah would come and his tongue would be dry, stuck to the roof of the mouth. It's the sense of he's going to be thirsty. And so Jesus knew that and he fulfilled the prophecy by saying, I'm thirsty. And they gave him sour wine to drink and he says this, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said these three words, it is finished. It's finished. And he bowed his head. He said, Into your hands, Father, I commit my spirit. Quoting another psalm, and he dies. It is finished. It is finished. Finished is pretty clear what that means, right? Complete. No more to be done. It's finished. What's the it? What is now finished? The eternal plan of God is being carried out to perfection by the Son of God. He lived the life we could not live. He was perfectly obedient in every way. In every way that the Father had called Him to live. He was perfect, enduring suffering. We could not be perfect. He was fully perfect. What is the it that was finished? The it that was finished is the full wrath of God that justly should be poured out upon sin was poured out upon Jesus and he absorbed that full wrath. The Father had forsaken and abandoned him so that he would never have to abandon us. And the full blow of the wrath of God was taken, the eternal plan of God carried out, and it was finished. All these sacrifices were needed in the Old Testament. All these sacrifices in order to try to deal with the problem of our sin. Here's what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices over and over, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, that is himself, he sat down at the right hand of God. Jesus offered himself as the one single sacrifice so that there's no more repeating of sacrifices. It is finished. That's what Jesus is saying. The sacrifice has happened. The full wrath of God absorbed. The perfect plan of God is carried out. It is finished. And you know what else is finished? As God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. That is, unrighteous people can now be brought into the family of God. 
mystery of mysteries. How in the world should we be in the presence of a holy God? He comes and he brings us there by sheer mercy alone. He makes us children. You know what else was finished? His suffering was finished. And that matters. It matters. Because it speaks to the fact that he knows what it's like to suffer. And we will never have to suffer alone. It's finished. Tim Keller says this, The immortal God became mortal. The invulnerable God became vulnerable. He became killable. This is the only major religion that has God experiencing our trouble. Our God had to have courage. He was vulnerable. He was mortal. And He knows what it is to be betrayed and face torture. To be accused, misunderstood, hated, beaten, and killed. The point, it is finished. What's finished is he's able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He's able to walk alongside us in our suffering. It is finished. And let me tell you this. Because it is finished, I'm finished. I'm finished. I'm finished trying to save myself. I cannot save myself. I must recline all that I am and say Jesus is my only hope. I'm finished because it's finished in him. I'm finished having to prove my worth by my performance. I'm finished because his performance proved everything. His performance was enough. He showed my worth by the cross. I'm accepted by faith in him. In him it is finished. I'm finished living in bitterness. I'm finished. Because he not only died for my wretched sins of unrighteousness, but he also died for my sins of self-righteousness. And in him, anyone who trusts in him, anyone who has sinned against you or me, can have their sins paid for in full because in him it is finished. I'm finished of trying to find my security in anything other than Jesus. I'm finished. I'm finished. Because it was finished in Him. Christ is our security. Friends, that's why Jesus is a big deal. He died and He finished the work. And His death finished the deal. So that now, His life brings real living hope. That's what this passage says. According to his great mercy, he caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This doesn't take rocket science, but you don't get a living hope with a dead Savior. That's not how that works. In order to have a living, ongoing, vibrant hope, living means he's alive at work in you, working for you and in you, changing you in the spot, on the spot, getting you ready for that last day. The only way you have a living hope is to have a living Savior. We do not have a dead teacher or a decaying prophet. We have a risen Savior. Death has been defeated. Our God is alive. And the church celebrates Easter all around the globe, celebrates this resurrection day because He is alive. If He was not alive... 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 makes it really clear. Let me just give you the list. If he's not alive, 1 Corinthians 15 says this. What I'm doing right now, preaching, it's meaningless. What you do at the workplace, what you do in your neighborhoods, preaching, it's meaningless. Faith is meaningless. It says that what we're doing right now makes us liars. Death is final and eternal. And eternal life doesn't exist. We are hopeless. And if resurrection is not true, any service and sacrifice we have is pointless. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that. That's the summary. But Jesus is alive. He is alive. Witness after witness, over 500 witnesses saw him alive. The author of these scriptures who went all the way to the grave, Peter and Paul, they died on behalf of this story that Christ is alive because they witnessed him. They saw him. I was reading something by Lee Strobel and he said this, the tomb's empty. Even the enemies of the followers of Jesus agreed that the tomb was empty. You know where? Lee Strobel says this. Even Jesus' enemies implicitly admitted his tomb was empty. Because when the apostles said that he was risen, his opponents replied, the disciples stole the body. They're conceding the tomb is empty. They are trying to explain how it got empty. If it wasn't empty, they'd just say, no, it's not empty. But they couldn't say that. The very people who used all their might, as we heard on the scriptures, to seal the tomb to make sure there was a guard over it are the very people who could not refute that the body was in there at one point and wasn't in there afterwards. He's alive. He is alive. Sin has been defeated. Satan has not won. Death is crushed. But friends, this is not just a logical mental exercise. This is immensely practical. Immensely practical. Because this passage here says, for all who trust in him, you're bearing witness to the fact that God takes dead people and makes them alive spiritually. The word here is called cause to be born again. To be born again. You can't make yourself born. That's something that happens to you. Note to self. And spiritually speaking, you can't make yourself born. God has to show great mercy upon sinners to make you alive, to make you want Him. And right now is that opportunity. The good news of Jesus is being proclaimed in this very moment that yes, you are sinners, but there is hope for you. Turn from your sin. Trust in Him. Surrender your life to Him. It's not that you figure it all out. You just say, oh God, I am tired. I am tired of trying to save myself. I'm tired of trying to fix my shame and my guilt. I'm tired to find, of trying to find peace elsewhere. I need you. Save me. Save me. Say that today. A living hope is birthed in the soul. It's birthed in the soul. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope. And you know what that hope is? It's both future and now. Future because of look at what he says in verse 4. It's a hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And it's kept by the same God who raised Jesus from the dead. It's kept. It's secure. It's yours. Imperishable. It's not going to die. Unfading. It's not going to diminish. Undefiled. There's no ounce of impurity at all. That's home. 
That's where we're headed. That's the living hope. He's going to get us there. It's a work of amazing mercy. I don't know if you've ever been to the grocery store. Thought you might. Have you ever seen, in some of these grocery stores, they've got these stands about yay high, and they've got like this little clear globe, and in the half globe gig, inside it is food, samples, and they don't cost anything. I love it. So you go in, and you pick that beast up, and you know, and you get that little piece of bread, and it lies to you. It tells you that it's fresh, and you put it in your mouth, and it is not. It's usually stale. That fruit has got some issues. I always think sometimes that's just false advertisement, you know. It's like it's just not going to lead me to want to buy. So anyway, but I, I fall for it almost every time. I love it. So have you ever been to Starbucks? And sometimes every now and then if you sit in Starbucks, they'll cut something up and they'll bring it around and give it to you. Have you ever experienced this? Probably not. Well, I have. And they bring it around. But it's cruel because I can't afford the big thing and that they've cut up into small pieces and they give you something about that big. And it's just like, is this, is this it really? It's all I get. Really? Is it? Well, okay. So I take my little morsel and I eat it and I wish I could have more, right? This is all what is happening around us. Every joy that you've ever experienced is small compared to what you will experience on the last day. It leaves you longing for more. Every single joy that you've had on this earth is a small little taste, a foretaste of what's to come. And the highest of pleasures that you've ever experienced is like that stale piece of bread compared to what you will have in the last day, that inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It looks a little bit like it, but nothing compared to the real thing. He is telling us we are caused to be born again to a living hope, to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's a living hope for there, but it's not just for there. The hope is for now. The hope is for now. An alive Savior is hope in the midst of now. That's what verse 6 says. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials. In this you rejoice, though, what's the next word? Now. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as is necessary, you have been grieved with various trials. What are you rejoicing in? You're rejoicing in the fact that God showed mercy to sinners. But you're also, at the same time, you are grieved with the trials that are around you. That word grieved is the word of heaviness, weightiness. It's the same form of the word that Jesus used when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and says he was very troubled, very sorrowful. Our Savior knows. He knows the grief of our various trials. But the beauty of this is, for those who have faith in Jesus, you do not have to experience that depth of heaviness and sorrow alone. Psalm 91 says, he's with you in your trouble. The massive difference between believers and unbelievers is not that believers don't have trouble and unbelievers do. No way. We all go through this broken world. 
but one will go through it without the comfort of Christ, and one will go through it with the presence of almighty living God who's conquered death at work inside of them and working for them. So that although the waters seem to constantly be receding, as Charles Spurgeon says, there will be an end and the waters will come back. Your suffering might feel so deep, but you can know because the death has been overcome, you can know this. It says it here. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is more than mental, this is personal. Our God knows our suffering. And so hear this. There is nothing, nothing we will face that's greater in any way, shape, or form than bringing a dead man back to life. Nothing. There's not one thing that we will face on planet earth that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead doesn't say our God is able. Our God is able. Sin does not have the final word. Sin will not win. And in the wonderful words of our great poet that gave a spoken word just a little bit ago, Emmanuel Gaines, he broke the chains where fear of dying had our souls anchored to this life. Now, present suffering, even to the point of death, are seen just as pathways to the Father's house. This passage says, although we don't see him, we love him because he has raised Jesus from the dead and he has caused us to be born again. And I hold it out for you today. Trust in that Savior. Let's pray. Oh God, there is nothing we will face that you are impotent to fix there is nothing we will face where you are being defeated and so we can trust that even the greatest of struggles has you with us in it understanding our suffering knowing the depth of our heaviness and sorrow and yet we know our end 